Good morning. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, be in verses 18 through 29 today. It'll be found in the <clears throat> Bibles provided on page 1009. We're going to be in Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. In many ways, the author here in this passage is going to play the hits. He's, uh, you remember how we started this series in Hebrews in the very first chapters, where he said that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is greater than Abraham, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle that the Lord laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are, are, are the work of his hands and they will perish, but he remains. He's also said, pay close attention to what you've heard lest we drift away from it. And if the message proclaimed by angels proved to be reliable and those who rejected it received retribution, how much more so shall we who neglect such a great salvation? All of this came in the very first couple of chapters. And all of that kind of served as an overture for the rest of the letter, if you will. In the beginning, he introduced the themes that, we would, that he would flesh out through the rest of the book. And here at the conclusion of the book, at the, at the real end of the book, here at the end of verse 12, we're going, back to the, to the, we're going back to rehearse some of those old themes, kind of the way you do at the end of a musical, where we hear all the familiar melodies once again. We see how they relate to one another, and the author does here the same thing. We hear references to many of these things one last time. We've been considering the life uh, of faith for the last couple of weeks. And if we think back to Hebrews 11, uh, the author said, Abraham obeyed when he was called to a, go to a place that he was receiving as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham is held up as the one who went to a place he did not know. And if we think about what we considered last week, in, in, in 12.1, we were exhorted to run with endurance the race set before us to a place that is, to a city that is promised. And we, are, we were to look forward to Jesus, our founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, who was also looking forward to something, endured the cross. And so we're exhorted to run a race with the end in mind. We're to be mindful of Jesus who endured with an end in mind, the joy set before him. And he tells us in, in 12, 13, as we read last week, so with that view in mind, set straight paths for your feet. And so in this closing section of the body of the entire letter, the author helps us set our sights on what's a, what awaits us. He shows us the end which we should have in mind. He said that Abraham is going to, all, uh, going to a land he did not know, but you, you know where you are going. 
And so he tells us today, he points it to us, he shows us where we are headed. And so the first thing he wants us to see is consider what is set before you. Let's read verses 18 through 24. This is God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's word. So if we remember um, that one of the purposes of this book is to convince these Jewish Christians to continue in their faith in Christ, to endure the suffering that Christians were suffering in first century uh, Palestine and not fold, fall back into the old covenant ways. So he reminds them of how they approached God in the old covenant. When the old covenant was instituted, you, let's see how you related to God then. And he refers them to our reading in, in Exodus uh, 19 and 20, when they were at Sinai. He doesn't mention the word Sinai here, but that's what he was referring to. He goes, recall when our forefathers were at Sinai. He says, you want tangible? You want something that you can touch? Well, God brought you to a mountain that you could see, but if you touched it, you would die. God commanded Moses to set limits around the mountain and commanded them not to go up into the mountain nor touch it. Whoever touched the mountain should be put to death. An animal, a person, doesn't matter. Immediately on the spot, they should be put to death. And so on the third day, Israel was called up to the mountain to meet God. And they're in their camp. And thunder and lightning and a thick cloud of smoke come upon, uh, fall upon the mountain. And there was a loud trumpet blast from the heavens so loud that the entire scene made Israel tremble. And so God, and so Moses calls Israel to the base of the mountain at a distance and the Lord descends upon the mountain in a blazing fire with smoke billowing from it as from a kiln. And the loud blasts of the heavenly trumpets get louder and louder. And Moses speaks to the Lord and God answers him in thunder. And then God then commands Moses to warn Israel not to approach the mountain, nor to let any of the priests come upon the mountain, lest the Lord break out against them. And then God speaks directly to the Israelites in the first parts of chapter 20. He gives them the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And what is Israel's response to all this? In Exodus 20, 18 through 21, 
the people plead with the Lord, ask the Lord not to speak to us ever again. We don't want to hear from him. We'll hear from you, Moses, but we do not want to hear from that God. Now we hear this and we may be prone to think that, okay, God, this God is the God of the Old Testament. That means he's mean and judgmental. While what we see in the New Testament is God gentle and lowly, but that is not the case at all. God is a gracious God who came down from heaven to dwell with the people chosen for his possession. This is who God is. This is what happens when you meet a whole, the holy God. This is who he is. He doesn't set up boundaries because he's a moody dad that kids are supposed to stay away from. He doesn't say, don't look at me, don't touch me, don't speak to me, stay out of my way. I don't want to be bothered. That is not the God that he is. He is holy. He is setting up these boundaries for the people's benefit. Humans cannot stand in the presence of the holy, eternal God. This God is interacting with his people and his people want none of it. You see that word there in verse 20, Pastor Kyle mentioned it, endure. They could not endure God speaking to them. We've thought a lot about endurance the last few weeks. How can we endure? We can endure because we have a great high priest who is interceding for us in the heavenly realms, who has entered the holy of holies on our behalf. These people could not endure the word spoken to them. They recoiled at it. It was too magnificent for them. Even their mediator, Moses, in Deuteronomy 9, 19, says that he trembled with fear. The mediator before the Lord trembled with fear. Moses feared God's response to Israel after their worship of the golden calf. He is frightened of God and he's fearful that Israel might have outsinned God's grace and he's going to break out against them. So the author is saying in 18 through 21, you haven't come to know God this way. That's not how you came to know him. And he shifts in verse 22. And he seems to be playing a rhetorical trick on his audience in the way he does it. He didn't say, he said, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. No, you came to Mount Zion. And immediately I imagine the Israelites go, that's right. Yeah, we didn't meet him at Mount Zion Right, we've got the temple. That's where we are. We are at the temple. This is where we meet God. It's a much more mediated relationship that we have with God in the temple. But God and the but the author in the book of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to show us that the temple and the priest is of no benefit at all to us. The people can't go into the Holy of Holies to meet God. And even their mediator, the high priest, can only go in once a year. And he begins by having to offer sacrifice for his own sin. In one wrong move, and the priest, the mediator, is destroyed. And the sacrifices must be offered continually, and they do nothing to perfect the worshiper, as we've read. They can't even perfect the priest offering them. 
This whole system was weak and useless. The temple is of the same stuff that Mount Sinai is. So they think the author is going to tr contrast their interaction with God on Sinai with their God in the temple. But he runs them right through the temple and up into the heavenly realms to the real place where God dwells, to the heavenly temple. And in verses 22 through 24, the author is going to pile up several things that we should set that these Hebrew, these Jew, uh, Jewish Christians and we also should should set our eyes upon. This is what you have come to. He says, he's brought you to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. He's saying you've been brought to the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth. There's definitely an already and not yet aspect to this. We are already citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a savior from there to bring us home as the Philippians 3.20 tells us. But we are citizens in exile in a foreign land. Looking forward to our to return to our home. So he's brought you to a Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he says, and you have come to angels in festal gathering. We've read earlier in the letter that Jesus is greater than the angels, but that doesn't mean that the angels don't have a place. The angels are real and they have a place in the worship of God. Acts 7 tells us that the angels were present at the giving of the law, but here... We are greeted by thousands upon thousands, myriads and myriads of angels in the heavenly realms who are enthusiastically gathered to celebrate the victory of Christ and triumph over sin and the, and the accomplishment of your redemption. The perfection that you enjoy in Christ that could not be accomplished any other way. That's what you come to. You come to the angels celebrating your arrival in the heavenly realms. You come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This assembly includes you. You are part of the assembly of the firstborn. You are treated and welcomed as the father's firstborn. You haven't entered into a gigantic conference that you've longed to attend. You haven't come to the greatest concert of your life and you've got front row seats. You haven't been greeted by volunteers who welcome you and hand you a program and show you to your seat. You've been welcomed home. You are arriving at a family gathering and you are the long lost son come home from college. You are welcomed at the door. You aren't observing this from afar. You are smack dab in the middle of it with full rights and privileges of a child of God. And you have come to God, the judge of all. This is quite the contrast from encountering God on Mount Sinai. You have come to God and there is unmitigated joy in his presence. If this is the case, then why does he refer to God as judge? Because God is judge. 
And the judge is the one who welcomes you in. You will be vindicated on the last day. You are not welcomed in and then you sit to the side while you're processed. You're not welcomed in waiting for the Caesar to give you the up or the thumbs down. No, you have a divine right to be there. God is displaying his justice by welcoming you in because you were declared righteous by the sovereign, uh, um, uh, perfect work of Christ. And you've got every right to be there just as much as Christ has to be there because you were standing there in his righteousness. We have been judged righteous and we are welcomed on account of that imputed righteousness. As Tom Schreiner says, you can come boldly to God's throne where he bestows grace because of Jesus. And they draw near in full assurance of faith, knowing that they will escape judgment because their bodies have been washed and cleansed. Consequently, the author tells us that you also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There are no imperfect people in heaven because they are declared righteous in Christ. When they arrive in the heavenly Jerusalem, they will be perfect. You will lack absolutely nothing in your relationship with God or in your relationship with one another. You will come into the presence of fellow saints who have already experienced God's perfecting spirit. We will all be like Adam and Eve before the fall, except better because we will be confirmed eternally righteous. There will be no flaws, no defects, no objections, no conflict, no disagreement, no half-truths, total unity. And lastly, the author says, you come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. What's the difference between coming to God in 18 through 21 at Mount Sinai and coming to, coming to God in 22 through 24 in Mount Zion? Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. You can't come to the joy of 22 through 24 without coming to Jesus. As we read back in chapter 9, if you seek to go back to the temple made with hands, that is a temple of idol that is a temple of idolatry now that Jesus has made the way into the most holy place. Because of the blood of the new covenant, not of blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, this is what awaits you when you come to the heavenly realms. This in every way is better than the old covenant at Mount Sinai, for it brings us into God's presence. And while Abel's blood spoke of his faith and his trusting in God in his offering of the sacrifices, Jesus' blood speaks a better word in that while Jesus did live a life of faith and trusting in God as he offered himself, his blood secures forgiveness for God's people. It perfects them and brings them fully into God's presence. What motivates you in your Christian walk? What helps you endure? Are you prone to be motivated by what you can see 
in touch? Do you feel like the gospel isn't enough? Do you think you need something more tangible? Do you need better worship? Do you need better singing? Do you need something that gets the juices flowing a little bit more? Those who came to what could be touched couldn't endure. Those who came to have their senses aroused couldn't endure. We think, oh man, if I had seen that, how could you not believe? None of them endured. Not one of them endured. But those who come to Christ, those who are like the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, they come to what is promised. And what is promised is unseen. But it is still spoken of. And we are setting our sights on that which we hear. What is unseen is eternal. What is unseen is certain. This, in, this section informs our worship, for sure. I already alluded to it. Our earthly gatherings, both as a church corporate and in our time together as family on family, are ways for us to express our common participation in what we will one day enjoy in heaven. We're gathered and we're consecrated and we're cleansed by the Messiah's work. It affects our uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. As we are reminded that one day we will come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Where there will be no conflict and no sin. And so we confess our sins silently and to one another. We hear assurance of pardon to know that even though we don't feel it. Even though we don't understand it. Even though we still sin. We are fully forgiven. And we set our hopes on the one day when it will be made perfect. When we will be made perfect perfect when we see the one who speaks a better word face to face in many evangelical churches they focus on what can be seen or what can be felt much of the worship is informed by images that we might encounter in 18 through 21 all inspiring thunderstrikes and calling down blazing fire but if we don't connect those images to what we read in 22 through 24, we're just driving our people back to Mount Sinai. We take considerable effort to not appeal to your emotion or try to dazzle you with, with, with effects or our senses. Our confidence rests on the word of God, which is much more powerful and effective. Faith comes through hearing in hearing through the word of God. This is why Paul in Ephesians 1 prays, For this reason I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may see. The eyes of your heart so that you may see what is the hope to which you have call, he has called you. In the riches of the glorious inheritance, in the communion of saints, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead 
is the very power that the Lord is using right now to sustain you to so that you may endure to the very end as you set your sights and your hopes there. Dads, do you bring your kids to Mount Sinai or do you bring them to Mount Zion? Do our kids know the joy of God or do they know the dread of God by the ways that we interact with them? So if this is what we have been called to, if this is the hope that is set before us, we see in verses 25 through 27, if this is what's offered to you, don't spurn the grace of God. Do not spurn the grace of God, the word that is spoken to you. Let's read verses 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The fact that God speaks has been clear from the very first verse of the letter. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. God spoke to Adam and Eve. God spoke to Israel at Sinai. God spoke through the prophets, beginning with Moses. And now God speaks to us through his son. God speaks to us now. See to it that you do not spurn the voice of him who speaks. This is very important for us to understand, every single one of us. God speaks and we have two choices. You can respond favorably and submit to the word spoken to you, or you can reject it. You can't just walk away from it and not choose. You are choosing by not responding. The consequences of spurning God's grace aren't, oh man, it's a shame. It would have gone a whole lot better for you if you had taken advantage of it. It would it, be so much easier. No, that's not the consequence. The consequence is judgment. They did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. That's what it says there in verse 25. If you refuse the one is speaking, you will not escape. They all, they all died in the wilderness. They did not endure. The people that God spoke to at Mount Sinai did not endure. You may think, well, that's not true. I mean, they eventually all got to the promised land, not the wilderness generation. There were two people, two people of an entire generation that made it to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Every single one of them, the rest of them died. 
They did not receive what is promised. They did not believe God. They looked with their eyes, but they did not believe. God graciously sent 12 of them into the promised land to see if God's promises were true. They were. They were all true. Yet those spies saw the people of the land. They didn't want to endure hostility. They didn't want to endure conflict. They grew weary and faint-hearted. They shrank back and did not want what God had promised. And they were judged for it. If you refuse him who is speaking, you will not receive the good that is promised. You will, however, receive what is promised to those who do not believe. You will not escape judgment. If they did not escape him who warned them on earth, the author says, how much less are your chances of escaping him who warns from heaven? Listen to me. You have the benefit of his word. The Spirit of God is speaking. You know what happened to the people of God in the wilderness and in the exile. And they did not believe God and they did not inherit the promise. You know that Jesus came to earth. That is beyond dispute. Jesus was a real man and Jesus lived the perfect life. So much so that when he, even those who killed him said, truly, this man was the son of God. And he was raised, and he was raised for the justification of any person who will wake up and turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is now standing in the heavenly realms, sustaining you and providing for you, giving you endurance to stand in these trying days. You may think, well, maybe God should have just made himself more known, and Israel would have believed. He should have spoken more. He should have been more forceful. His voice shook the earth. And what was Israel's response? Hey, Moses, we don't want to hear from him ever again. You speak to us, but we don't want any of that. But now... The author in verse 26 quotes Haggai 2, 6 through 9, which says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. For those of you who reject his word, this word, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that you will encounter God as he is described in 18 through 21. But bear in mind that that is how God appeared to his people. How much more horrific 
to experience the unmitigated presence and wrath of God as his enemy with no one to stand between you and him or stand there on your behalf. If you are rejecting this word this morning, first of all, I pray that the Lord would wake you up and hear these words. But I would just like to ask you, on what basis do you reject the earth-shaking word of Christ? What rationale are you using to reject it? In the quietness of your mind, when you're all alone, and you seek to assure yourself that somehow you're safe in rejecting Christ, whose opinion are you relying upon? What comfort can you find? What do you place your confidence in as your refuge? I direct your attention back to verses 26 and 27. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. Friend, nothing, and I mean nothing, will stand against the Lord on that day. If you're finding security in numbers, maybe your friends don't believe either and you're going, well, I mean, God can't send us all the hell and eternal destruction. Yeah, he can. He's bringing the whole thing down. If you're finding your security in the philosophy of men or some dude on Twitter, none of it will survive that day. As our New Testament reading said, 1 Corinthians 18, for, uh, 1, 18, 19, and 20. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. You may think, but... What about all the other well-meaning upright people who practice their own religion and believe it as fervently as you do yours? What's God going to do with them? I would remind you of the people of Ashdod who captured the Ark of God and they brought it into the temple of Dagon in 1 Samuel 5. When they came in the next morning, the idol Dagon was on its face before the ark of the Lord. And they propped him back up and they came back the next day. And the idol of Dagon was on its face once again before the ark of the Lord with its head cut off and its arms cut off. No other religion will stand against the Lord when he shakes the heavens and the earth. No one will escape. For even the Lord's own home, the heavens and the earth will be shaken to make way for the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass 
in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Oh, friend, this is the word that I'm preaching to you now. Do not spurn the earth-shaking word of Christ. This is the word spoken from heaven. This is the word of the blood of the lamb that cleanses you and perfects you and provides for you these unimaginable unimaginable rewards. What does the world have to offer that in any way compares with this? Truly, what does the world promise you for eternity? Maybe you come back as a dolphin? Or maybe this is all there is? And you just lie in a box for eternity? Is that what you're basing your hope upon? Is that any kind, in any way, a promise that causes you to endure? Don't buy any of it. The world is fleeting. Do you feel it shaking? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Finally, in verses 28 through 29, let us serve our earth-shaking God. Let's read verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I think in verses 28 through 29, we come to the end of the argument for the entire book. It's interesting that this word translated worship in verse 28 is translated serve in 914. 914, how much more will the blood of Christ through who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We don't just believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Carry on with life. No, we are saved to serve the living God. We serve him and we worship him. We offer the service of worship to him. We thought back and, and, and um, how Jesus has purified us and cleansed us so that we may serve the living God. And here we see the end. We see the heavenly realms laid before us. What we, we see what awaits us. And we see that he is the only one who stands, truly stands the test of time. We see that nothing else will endure. Everything else that we serve, everything else that we could place our hope in will fall. Everything else will be shaken to dust. But Jesus is the one that stands. So what's left to be said other than let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken receiving such a strong foundation so let's serve him who gave us this foundation 
How do we live going forward with this knowledge that we have? With this very thorough argument from Hebrews. We want to praise God. We've spent a lot of time in this book thinking about how the offerings of the day are stench in the Lord's nostrils and how they don't save, they don't perfect, they're weak and they're useless to accomplish anything. So what is acceptable going forward? Hearing the word of God, believing in it, trusting in it, allowing it to inform our hopes, to salve our wounds, to strengthen weak knees, to lift our drooping hands, and to give meaning to our remaining difficult days. Our God is a consuming fire, but has already been prayed. We can embrace, as, as Pastor Tim prayed, we can embrace this consuming fire because we know that he is removing everything that is objectionable to him. We, we consider that about how we endure suffering because we know that we, through that suffering, we are made perfect. And so we don't shy away from the consuming fire. We worship the consuming fire. We praise the all-consuming fire because we know that through it, he is making us like him. It's important to note that the God we draw near to in 22 through 24 is the very same God that Israel could not draw near to in 18 through 21. God hasn't lessened his standards. God hasn't tempered his glory. He hasn't mitigated his holiness. He sent his son. And we are welcome into the heavenly places, into the festal gathering because of the all-sufficient work of Christ. Therefore, our worship of Christ shouldn't be flippant. It shouldn't be casual. We should worship and live like we believe it. We shouldn't think that acceptable worship is just expressing gratitude for Oh man, we thank you. Thank you so much for what you've done. I really appreciate it. Okay, we'll see you later. No, we worship him with our very lives. We show the all-suppressing worth of Christ and the all-satisfying treasure that he is by turning our eyes away from the things of this world. By, by laying those things that will be shaken, that will be burned up behind in his book, Engaging with God, David Peterson says, Christian worship is the service rendered by those who have truly grasped the gospel of God's grace and its implications. The motivation and power for such service in Hebrews is quite specifically the cleansing that derives from the finished work of Christ and the hope which that work sets before us. Gratitude expressed in service is the sign that the grace of God has been both apprehended and appreciated. And the sign that we have apprehended or grasped and appreciated God's grace is that we have heard in the message of Hebrews, uh, the, God's great, uh, the message of God's grace that we've heard in the message of Hebrews is worship and reverence and awe. Worshiping God with reverence is much more than mere duty. 
or formality. We're reminded that we are meeting with God himself, the God who is a consuming consuming fire. Our minds go back to the picture on Mount Sinai. We're reminded that God takes no pleasure in the praise of our mouth while our hearts are far from him. While at the same time, we acknowledge that we are completely unworthy to stand before this God. We know that we can never praise him well enough to justify our existence before him. So we cling to our great high priest, expressing gratitude for his work on our behalf, both in cleansing us, but also in strengthening us to endure and strive to know him better. We endure in this life, both strengthened by the knowledge of who God is and spurned on to the reward based on what Christ has done. Don Whitney has written that that, um, worship and reverence is our response to God's holiness and justice, while worship and awe is our reaction to God's grace and glory and power. Those two things, his holy and justice, his, his holiness and his uh, justice and his grace and glory and power are all met together and we can praise all of that together and we can behold it because of Christ. Our God has promised us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If his promise cannot be shaken, will he also not strongly support those, uh, support us in our race of endurance? You who are doubting, you who are struggling, cry out to the Lord in your weakness and doubt. The great high priest is in the heavens interceding on your behalf. He is the one who paid the penalty for your sins. He is the one who has provided you um, uh, access before this holy, all-consuming God. And he is offering you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us all worship as grateful ones who are receiving such a kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for those here who do not yet believe, who reject this or whose lives seem to give evidence of their rejection or refusal of these magnificent promises that we have read and considered today. Lord, we pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Please soften their hearts. Please encourage us, Lord, in our evangelism for this is the true reward that awaits us. Father, we pray that you would equip us so that we may be those who call into the darkness and invite people into this all-consuming, marvelous light. Father God, please give us strength for the journey. We're prone to turn away We're prone to rest stops for sin. Forgive us, Lord, for all of our sin. Forgive us for how we are quick to dismiss these wonderful promises. 
and trade them for a simple bowl of stew. Lord God, thank you that you are a merciful God in Christ. Help us to encourage one another in these long days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.